I, you, everybody already knows about my hockey prowess. We don't need to talk about my soccer skills. <laughs> yeah, on the soccer field. The, pitch. The grass pitch. <laughs> Docket, episode 76. My name is Michael Spratt. Hi, this is Emily Tammon. Hey, Emily Tammon. How are you? I am good, Mike Spratt. And you? Good. Are you feeling as growly as our dog is? <laughs> it's pretty growly. Be quiet, dog. Yeah, there he goes. He's licking himself. <laughs> Perfect. Um, what's up? This and that, the other thing, a couple of other things. I don't know, not too much. Just got back from a six-year-old soccer practice, also known as herding cats. Did you kick their asses at soccer? I could never even... I, you. Everybody already knows about my hockey prowess. We don't need to talk about my soccer skills. <laughs> yeah, on the soccer field. The, the pitch. The grass pitch. <laughs> um, I'm doing okay. Yeah, tell me more about that. Trying to think about stuff. Um, our assistant at the office quit suddenly again. Yes. Yes, you'll just have to hire someone new. This is part of being an entrepreneur. It feels like an episode of Murphy Brown. <laughs> Murphy Brown is on our minds. We're kind of excited about this reboot that's coming, and I feel like you've been bringing it up a lot lately, which makes me happy. I think so. Um, it does fit, because much like Murphy Brown, we've had a bit of a revolving door, which, like, it's a hard job and stuff, but seriously, millennials, if you don't want to work somewhere, <laughs> you don't need to make up an excuse. You can just quit. I don't like I won't take it personally won't you though lots of heart attacks lots of heart attacks everyone's got a heart attack in the family I know um but yeah I mean things are going pretty good yeah yeah a couple trials a couple things wrote some stuff I don't know we're having a little weekend sans enfant so there's that coming up yep going up to speak at the spring um, CLA conference in Toronto which is great Mm -hmm. um this weekend our six-year-old son caught the biggest fish ever. I don't think it was the biggest fish ever, but it was a very handsome trout. And I will just know for good friends of the podcast, uh, Peter Sankoff and Camille, uh, we threw it back. We didn't even use a hook to catch it. We certainly didn't eat it. We ate it. I'm it sorry. It was delicious. Yeah, I know. I felt sort of bad about that. It was tasty. <laughs> And then our children wrote uh, a bunch of essays for school. One was about how zoos are good. Yeah. And we should have more animals in the zoo. We need our children to listen to Paw and Order and learn more about animal justice. And then um, Henry had to create a town, so he created, like, the worst totalitarian dictatorship ever. Yeah, he had to, like, build a society from scratch, and it's, it's not a society in which I would choose to reside. That's a fact. Most people, well, people are assigned jobs when they're born, and most people are police officers to maintain order. (laughs) What have we done? Um, Terrible parents. Um, But yeah, other than that, I think there's like a couple things. Let's try to keep it short today. Yeah, we're going to keep it short. We've got two things we want to talk about that are timely. 
and then we're just going to shut it down. We're just going to do a nice, quick, and dirty. Yep. We always say that all the time. Yeah, we do. Why don't you tell our friends what we're going to talk about? Well, I think that uh, we're going to start off just with like, like a little conversation about, you know, access to information, transparency, checking in on one of the pillars of our democracy, um, the courts, and specifically the Supreme Courts, because the Supreme Court of Canada and Library and Archives Canada have an agreement um, where after 50 years, uh, the Supreme Court uh, will release information and material generated by judges uh, from their time on the court. So we're going to talk about that. I don't think we've actually talked about that, uh, you and I. Um, so I have no idea what your opinion is. Too long, too short. I guess we'll find out. Yeah. And then after that, uh, we're going to move into something that's totally in your wheelhouse. Um, let me ask you this. Did the Liberals promise to bury criminal law legislation to make things easier on corporations in a massive omnibus budget implementation bill? I don't recall that being one of the hundreds of promises they made. Because if they did, they kept that promise. Yes. We're going to talk about that. Yes, we are. Um, But before we do that, how about a word from our sponsor? I think it would be apropos. This podcast is brought to you by Blue Coal. No, I've been listening to the Shadow Podcast, so... I literally um, don't know. 1930 that. Radios, Blue Coal. They deliver it to you. It burns uh, with a patented blue flame, so you know you're burning blue coal. The environment and the economy do go hand in hand. <laughs> it's one of the best things about listening to uh, old radio shows, which I'm a fan of, is you get those advertisements, and um, I sort of do want Blue Coal to sponsor us. But they're not. We have a different sponsor than Blue Coal. We do. um, Because this podcast is brought to you by Iman Publishing's Criminal Law Series. This series offers practical and procedural guidance for both defense and crown counsel, anchored by the expertise of general editors Brian H. Greenspan and Justice Vincenzo Rondinelli. And not by Blue Coal. No, unfortunately. But Blue Coal, if you still exist, call us. (laughs) Um, so, Supreme Court, 50 years. 50-year embargo. And the, they actually, the, that restriction came into effect last June um, when the court and Library and Archives Canada announced that as part of an agreement to ensure that the case files of Canada's highest court will be preserved and accessible to future generations, much, much future generations, um, they will be released and made available after a 50-year holding off period. What was it before the 50 years? Because there would have been, I, I'm just trying to figure it out, but it was less than 50 years. I don't know if they had their own thing. I know the government has 20 years for certain things. Anyway, whatever it is, 50 years is a considerable, yeah, I'm just looking here in an article on CBC that like decades ago, 50-year embargoes were typical on access to government files, which then gave way to 30 years and then to 20 years. Um, so let's just start by sort of giving a little bit of context, right? So this, obviously, the Supreme Court publicly releases all of its final versions of its decisions, right? But in the course of um, drafting those reasons, There is an exchange that occurs between members of the court, the law clerks, where drafts are circulated, comments are circulated, and in fact, in the course of that process, sometimes um, 
you know, where the consensus lies can shift and change, right? So um, you have a first draft that's circulated, maybe you think that's going to be a majority opinion, but that over time with further deliberation and consideration and a review of a substantive draft that, you know, things can change. And like you can often see that when you read the judgment or get a hint of that's uh, what has happened because I mean quite often how the judgments are structured um, if there's a dissent is that the majority will sort of lay out the facts set the groundwork maybe even summarize the cases below deliver their reasons and then the dissent will say why they disagree sometimes it's sort of flipped around where you have the dissent doing all of that setup um, and then delivering its decision so you can sort of tell that maybe a judge flipped from one to the other and right. what was a dissent was the majority. Um, but I mean, you clerked at the, at the court. Is there something more than just notes in a draft and emails? Or is there other topics of conversation that... Well, there would also be, and I actually know this less from my time as a law clerk and more just from the fact that my mom was a judge, but there would be the judge's notebooks. So the notes that they take in court... Um, their own, you know, basically any work product that a judge creates in the course of his or her tenure. So it would even include probably, I would imagine, drafts of speeches um, that might be given at conferences, um, you know, really just any notes or documents that are generated. And the rationale for some kind of period of embargo, I think there is one and it's an important one because we don't want judges to be censoring themselves in the course of their deliberations um, because of a concern for how you know their their comments might be scrutinized. Like it's it's very important. It's it's almost similar to solicitor client privilege, right? It's just important that when the judges are deliberating on legal matters of national importance, that they feel um, free to do that outside of public scrutiny, and then you know the decision represents the final. The reasons for judgment reflect the final decision. But I do think it makes sense that despite, you know, wanting to promote free and open deliberation among members of the court, that at some point, historians be able to look at that and to come to better understand how some of these decisions were reached. So, again, apologies, I don't know what the current um, or the, the... The current is 50. Right, exactly. But before this came in. And so this this was, you know, essentially announced by... Um, the Chief Justice and Library and Archives without really giving an explanation as to why there was a need to um, increase the period of time. The Chief Justice has declined to publicly explain the rationale or explain it. And interestingly enough, um, a number of retired judges of the court have expressed concern. Um, they have indicated that they do not support um, a 50-year embargo, which is interesting because these are people whose own uh, materials could be coming under scrutiny uh, sooner than later uh, if this 50-year embargo wasn't in place. And there's been like quite a um, outcry, I would say, um, from you know a small segment of the population that cares about these things. But you know, political scientists and law professors and others who have an interest in these things. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it'd be interesting to see how the courts and judges' thoughts on various topics change. And I mean, you can think of some of sort of the hot button or sort of sensational type of issues that first come to mind, ruling on assisted death, which, you know, we've had two decisions that, you know, the Supreme Court reversed themselves on that, mm -hmm. um, or decisions on other issues that might be 
you know, socially controversial, like the, um, you know, abortion decisions or same-sex decisions, you know, things that, you know, maybe um, the intersection between sort of law and politics and, you know, public sentiment. I think that there has to be some period. I mean, I'd like to know now what the judges say, but I mean, when you're a judge on the Supreme Court, all of your words are measured, even when they do these like dog and pony interview shows with the judges before they're appointed, they don't really answer questions because I mean, you don't want to prejudice yourself for upcoming cases. And I mean, certainly you want to be able to have an open mind and change your mind depending on your discussions with colleagues and you don't want that thrown back in your face. No, and part of how you test you know, where you stand is by sometimes asking hard questions, right? And you may come to be satisfied that though that isn't an issue, but you wouldn't want, like I said, like judges to be censoring themselves in any way. Um, but at the same time, like for the court to enjoy legitimacy from the public, it can't just be completely sealed off from public scrutiny, right? So it's it's trying to find where this balance is, but the the what's perplexing to me is just kind of what was driving the decision to increase the period. Like, is it just there's a new chief justice and this is personal view? Is are all the members of the court concerned about this? Like, I have no idea. I mean, we'll here's know. what I think. Um, you certainly don't want material um, written by a judge who is still actively on the court released. Right. Um, you want to keep that safe, at least until they're off the court. But judges overlap. So, I mean, the chief justice just stepped down. She was on the court for almost 30 years. She was appointed in 1989. And if you were to release, um, say, had a 30-year period, and you were to release some of the judges that she overlapped with at the beginning of her career, Mm -hmm. they might contain notes of what she said or you know her thoughts or how um, their decisions may have changed or been influenced by what she thought so by releasing you know notes of a judge who's been gone 30 years it might still release information um, that relates to a judge who's currently sitting on the court especially if you have judges that sit you know quite a long time Um, and I don't think we want to start a process of releasing information after 30 years, but have some unnamed party go through and redact that information and black things out and then have different waiting periods for that redacted information and maybe have that never released. So, I mean, I think maybe that 50 year period, I think would avoid any of those situations where you might have overlapping judges because it's a long enough period. Yeah, that's true. But again, I think, I don't know why the court can't tell us why they think 50 years is appropriate. Because there's also, like, there are historians. They might want to write biographies of some of these judges um, that would be of interest to the public, I think, or some segments of the public. (laughs) Um, But anyway, it'll be interesting to see whether they backtrack at all, given the public reaction, or whether they, you know, decide to give us a little bit more of an explanation. But it's just certainly something in the world of... Uh, you know, justice that was being talked about the past little while. I certainly um, would like to know what um, Justice uh, William Roger uh, McIntyre from British Columbia was thinking in uh, 1980. Would you? I would. Well, maybe you'll be able to find out. In two years, I will be able to. (laughs) No. 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 Fifty years seems shorter and shorter the older I get. (laughs) 
Yeah. No, that's just under 40 years ago. Um, but I mean, like, if we're looking at 50 years, we'll soon be able to find out what judges like um, Ronald uh, Martland or Justice Nolan or, um, ooh, there's some, oh my gosh, okay, there's a lot of judges here where I'm like, there's a law school named after that judge. <laughs> How about that? Look at you. So you would not count yourself among the people with a keen interest in judicial history then? <laughs> well, uh, apart from um, Justice uh, Etsy. Mm-hmm. Because there's a website named after him. Etsy. <laughs> That's amusing. All right, fun times. Yeah. Shall we move on to talk about uh, omnibus legislation? Let's talk about omnibus bills. We love a good omnibus bill. Super, super fun. So I know what you're thinking. You're thinking the docket is going to talk about a budget implementation bill? But do you know what we should do before we talk about that? What? We should talk about another book. Oh, you think so? I think so. Okay, let's do it. Because we're keeping this one short, right? We That's don't want to like bury the, the sponsorship message. No, we wouldn't want to And this that. is actually a really good one. Yeah. So we're excited about this one. So mark your calendars, because in August of 2018, um, there is um, what will be the seventh volume in the criminal law series coming out, and that is Indigenous Peoples and the Criminal Justice System, a Practitioner's Handbook by Jonathan Rudin. Yeah, this is, this is going to be really great because Jonathan Rudin has a considerable experience as I believe he's been the... Director of Aboriginal Legal Services in Toronto, or certainly is, um, uh, I'm not sure his exact title, but in any event, this is someone who knows a lot about what he's talking about if he's writing a book on um, Aboriginal peoples and the criminal justice system. I think it's also uh, a subject area that is of um, increasing importance to practitioners in the sense that there's just a really heightened awareness of um, how the extent to which the justice system has not been serving the needs of indigenous people and yet i think a lot of practitioners um don't know that they really have the tools to appropriately um you know just ensure that the 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 right considerations are are before the court so i think it's timely i think it's it's a book that is going to be really appreciated by practitioners on all sides and i'm happy to see that it's being um, put out by someone with um, so much um, direct experience uh, with the issue. Yeah, I mean, it's so important given, I mean, what we see in courts all the time, the over-representation of Indigenous people in court, you know, the, the well-documented over-representation of Indigenous people in the correctional system, and, you know, the important principles that have been laid down by the Supreme Court in cases like Gladue and Ippoli, which... You know, I'm often skeptical how much of a difference those decisions sort of make in our courts. Um, I see them be talked about a lot, but I don't see them necessarily put into action um, as much as perhaps they should be. And so, you know, I think when you have, you know, a whole page, a whole book devoted to that issue, I think that's a, a super good thing. Yeah, so keep your eyes out for that. It's coming out. And if you want, if, if our listeners were interested in purchasing uh, Aboriginal people in the criminal justice system, how would they go about doing that? Well, for our listeners, Iman Publishing is offering 10% off the titles uh, in this series. And all you have to do is visit iman.ca slash CLS. That's E-M-O-N-D dot C-A slash C-L-S and you enter code uh, docket 10 at checkout. So consider doing that. 
Um, so that book is uh, 304 pages long. Oh, that is shorter than the budget implementation bill we're about Which to talk about. Which is more than twice as long <laughs> as that. And it's so long that even some um, liberal MPs were unaware that buried all the way at page 528, there was uh, some amendment to the criminal code that introduces uh, and formally uh, codifies in the criminal code the concept of remediation agreements. Remediation agreements, you say? That doesn't really sound like it has anything to do with budgets. No, this section has nothing to do with implementing the budget, but it does um, introduce some concepts into the criminal code that, you know, have been used in sort of other areas of the law, um, but never quite like this. And maybe why don't you sort of break down, because, you know, as a tax prosecutor and doing work with CRA and stuff, you had um, some experience with remediation agreements. So, I mean, why don't you break it down and and, um, tell me what a remediation agreement actually is? So what's set out here, starting at page 528 of a budget implementation bill, is a new regime to govern certain aspects of essentially, I'll call it plea bargaining, but it's almost, it's a pre-plea bargain uh, in the context of, you know, essentially corporate crime. So offenses um, suspected, because it it's not even... Well, this is part of what I find confusing about it that we'll talk about. But basically where there are allegations that an organization has committed uh, some kind of corporate crime, uh, rather than fully investigating and prosecuting that organization, this new regime uh, contemplates the organization admitting responsibility and setting out what it was that it did Um, making some kind of reparation so if it's some kind of a fraud paying back the money you know whatever it is uh, in exchange for which on the basis of one of these remediation agreements um, the charges will be stayed so this is huge because it means that despite having admitted responsibility for a criminal offense the organization will not have a conviction on its record and will not have a criminal record of any kind which in turn Um, means that the organization will, for example, remain eligible to bid on federal contracts um, and I don't even know what else, but basically not having a criminal record is something that, um, you know, organizations like the idea of. Yeah, I mean, let's just boil it down into plain language. Under this agreement, um, where a corporation, so not an individual, um, and trade unions, municipalities, and sort of other organizations are excluded. So we're talking about corporations here only. When they have committed a criminal offense, um, conspiracy, frauds, you know, destruction of data, um, a criminal offense, um, when they have done that, the police can charge them. They have reasonable probable grounds to do so. And then the prosecutor can enter into an agreement with them despite the fact they, have a, they believe they have a reasonable prospect of conviction against that corporation, the prosecution can enter into an agreement so the corporation can buy their way out of criminal courts. So, I mean, a couple of things. First of all, and I mean, I don't disagree with what you just said, but first of all, these types of agreements do already exist in a less formal way. So, you know, 
I suppose there's something to be said for if this is happening, then it should be clearly set out how and when it happens. Like, there's something to be said for that. You know, whether it should be the priority of the government with everything else it has it's on, on its agenda. Like, I don't know why they're doing this and they haven't, you know, dealt with the mandatory minimums or the victim fine surcharge. And we'll talk more about this that. This wasn't in, in the mandate letter. This isn't in the mandate letter. I have no idea where this is coming from. I think it was a surprise to a lot of people. Now, in terms of context, like large scale corporate frauds, corporate crimes, complex economic crime is incredibly difficult to detect. It's, it's difficult to investigate and it's very challenging to prosecute. So there is something to be said for looking for innovative ways or tools to um, essentially make it easier, if I could just, you know, put it that way. Um, and when you look at um, the, the, um, the legislative purpose, so the parliament's expression of why it's doing this, it says that it's to denounce wrongdoing and harm um, that the wrongdoing has caused to victims, to hold the organization accountable, but not by way of a criminal conviction or record, to contribute to respect for the law by imposing an obligation to put in place corrective measures, to encourage voluntary disclosure of the wrongdoing, um, to provide reparations for harm, and to reduce the negative consequences of the wrongdoing. Okay, so these are like the, the six stated purposes to the extent that I've heard anyone talk about this and we haven't that much because it's buried in an omnibus bill I have heard people talk about how like for example in the US where they have a similar thing they're called deferred prosecution agreement same kind of idea um, part of the thinking behind it is that it actually encourages wrongdoers to come and disclose their malfeasance before they're even under investigation. And there is something to be said for finding ways to do that um, because it can just be so difficult to even detect this type of crime. And this is something that is commonly used in the context of income tax evasion. So if you have gotten away with tax evasion, okay? Or I guess if you take over a corporation or a company or someone's books and you discover that although you're not responsible for it you've uncovered it and you want to come forward so yeah. not that you've got away with it but it's happened so if you come forward to the Canada Revenue Agency at a time when you're not under audit and you're not on the cusp of being uncovered basically but if you voluntarily disclose your wrongdoing um, you can get immunity from prosecution so anything you disclose in the context of a voluntary disclosure can't subsequently be used, be used against you in a prosecution so if you can't make a deal any admissions that you made, the Crown can't rely on later. Um, and you'll end up with, you know, civil penalties and interest, and there'll still be a, a, a consequence. But this um, is different here. Right. So, so and now, and I actually, someone did reach out to me over Twitter and say that even in the context of these CRA voluntary disclosures, the CRA is actually looking to widen the availability of these things so that it may or, or may not be the case at some point in the future that it's still available even if you are maybe on the cusp of being uncovered. Anyway, the point being, in terms of this regime, I don't think, well, there's nothing in here that says there's any kind of condition that you not already be under investigation. No, it's so in the criminal code. Critical. It's a condition that you've been charged and are being governed by the criminal code. Yeah, it's a condition that there's a reasonable prospect of conviction. Exactly. So that's a big one. So in tax evasion cases, sometimes it would happen that, you know, okay, we think there's something here, 
but it could take years to do the kind of investigation. If a person wants to come forward and basically put it all on the table and explain exactly what it was that they did, yes, they should get some kind of discount, right, in terms of the ultimate punishment, for sure. And they're prepared to pay back the money and pay penalties and interest and, you know, promise never to do it again because you would never even find those people otherwise. So, but this is totally different than this. This is the the organization has to essentially already be subject of charges because you can't stay charges that haven't been laid. And the Crown has to have a reasonable prospect of conviction. Now, presumably they can get that reasonable prospect of conviction on the backs of the admissions. So like the if the if the organization is prepared to set out what it was that they did, the, the, the Crown can rely on that to say they have a reasonable prospect of conviction. But at the same time, the Crown is not supposed to be proceeding on charges where they don't have a reasonable yeah. prospect of conviction. So it, it's, it's a little bit... So, like, on the one hand, I do think because this type of crime is so hard to detect that we need to find better ways, but I just don't see this being it. Like, yeah. And I saw, you know, one of my colleagues comment, and I completely agree with this, what we need is better trained, better resourced... Um, law enforcement professionals to deal with this type of complex economic crime and better resource prosecution services to, because these cases, they can take years and they probably don't need to take years if, if you had properly resourced. And the return on those types of investments and resources is, is enormous. Like in, in economic crime, especially in tax evasion, like if you, it, it costs a lot of money to investigate and prosecute tax evasion. But if you can get the money paid back plus interest plus civil penalties plus criminal penalties like you do get a good return on investment okay. but i want to take a step back and just break it down a little bit mm-hmm. because when you look at the purpose of this section does it denounce an organization's wrongdoing and the harm that they've caused to let them pay money to escape because it's only available to those who can afford to pay money so if you can afford to pay money back I don't know how it necessarily denounces the conduct. I don't see how it necessarily holds an organization accountable for a wrong, its wrongdoing to pay back money that it fraudulently obtained. And I mean, we can look at the Loblaws example that we talked about, you know, mm-hmm. where they defrauded, you know, individuals, people scraping to, to buy their groceries, defrauded them of millions of dollars in inflated bread sales through a giant conspiracy. I don't know how it holds the organization accountable to, to impose a monetary penalty for that. Yeah. I don't know how this contributes to respect for law, for abiding by the law when organizations know that they can take advantage of these sorts of organize, these sorts of deals after they're caught. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a cost of doing business. I don't know how it encourages voluntary disclosure of wrongdoing to wait until your hands in the cookie jar before you, you know, say that you're sorry for doing it. Yeah. And I don't know necessarily how it's going to deter organizations from doing this because what we know about deterrence and i'm not a big believer in deterrence when it comes to criminal law generally you know someone who's addicted to drugs and you know commits you know property offenses or robberies or thefts to to fund their their addiction they're not deterred someone who's you know going to use a firearm because they have mental health issues isn't going to be deterred um, by a minimum sentence and someone who you know is has no respect for the law isn't going to be deterred in the first place. Deterrence 
doesn't work that well. And if you ask the normal person on the street, you know, what is an offense or what punishments you can get for offenses or they what minimum sentence, they don't even know. Yeah. So deterrence is bullshit. But where deterrence might actually work is when you have sophisticated individuals like corporations who make a cost-benefit you know, calculation about what course of action to take and are geared by money and profits. And so getting caught facing criminal consequences and you're potentially going to jail um, is a deterrent in those situations. I don't know how it adds to the deterrent factor to say, if you are caught, here's an option other than a criminal record and potential incarceration. Well, let me just back up on one thing, though. These deals are only available to the organization. And part, I think, of like trying to figure out what's behind this is that the, the organization is more likely to get this deal, and it says it right here, if they're prepared to root out the individuals that are responsible. So if, they, if, if, if the organization, representatives or whatever, is prepared to throw under the bus the people that actually devise the scheme, those people wouldn't get an agreement like this. Only the organization gets the agreement. So the individuals can still be charged. Um, and, what, and this is interesting too, because we didn't really mention this, but in the purposes, the, the final purposes to, re and again, I'm really curious like what's driving this, but it says to reduce the negative consequences of the wrongdoing for persons, employees, customers, pensioners, and others who did not engage in the wrongdoing while holding responsible those individuals who did engage in that wrongdoing. So the idea again being, if you just crush the corporation, you actually end up hurting a lot of innocent people. Whereas if you give the deal, give a deal to the organization in exchange for, you know, throwing under the bus some, the individuals responsible, then maybe that's, you know, better for employees, pensioners, and others, and customers, I guess. But like, I just would have thought, so, so like there are some nuggets in here where I can, I sort of get like this very loose thread of what they're maybe trying to do. They do it <laughs> but, so poorly. Well, and also why, why is it in a budget bill? Like when the government has a really, I, I hate to call it ambitious, but I will call it ambitious law reform agenda. It's, it's the agenda that's ambitious from what I've seen so far. Like, I just don't fully get why, where this has come from in terms of the priorities. They, they are under a lot of pressure to go after, you know, tax evasion, for example. Well, do you know what they should do then? They should narrow the scope of the criminal code. They should decouple mental health issues, addiction issues, and poverty issues from the criminal code. They should actually do some of the reforms that if they care to consult with any, any practitioners would suggest. And they can take those resources and devote them to detecting and prosecuting corporate crime. Because what is completely repugnant, and this is a very liberal thing to do, um, this gives a benefit to corporations where that benefit is not available to individuals. If you are, and I've seen these cases so many times, you're a single mom, you're on government assistance, you're working and declaring your income, you're one of your dependent children, get a job, and you don't declare that income. That can lead to overpayments. And over time, because it can take a while to charge, that could lead to massive overpayments. You know, $1,000 a year, they don't charge you for seven years, and I've seen this before, that's fraud over $5,000. Mm -hmm. This sort of agreement isn't available to those individuals. Sometimes I can sit down and negotiate with the Crown and say, look, they're charged with, you know, an overpayment of $10,000. What if they can 
a poor this this poor you know person on social assistance who's scraping to get by in the first place what if they can scrape together enough money to pay it under five thousand dollars can you drop it down to a fraud under five thousand dollars and proceed summarily instead of a fraud over thousand five thousand which is a straight indictable offense and sometimes you can work that out but certainly there's no formal mechanism for that you're relying on just the good discretion of a prosecutor and there's no way to avoid a charge altogether yeah and you're still gonna end up with a criminal record yeah like you're gonna you're going to so pay it back. and why, why are we preferring corporations, preferring those who are already obscenely wealthy, because only wealthy corporations who can afford to pay the money back take advantage of this, not a, not a, you know, a criminal corporation who has no assets and has bled everything yeah. offshore. They're not going to be able to take advantage of this. And while we're on the topic of things that under this regime organizations could take advantage of that individuals can't, let's talk about the victim surcharge. Okay, can I rant just for a second? Yeah. So... <laughs> Please do. There is a mandatory victim fine surcharge in Canada. Thank you, Stephen Harper and Conservatives for that. That means that for if it's an indictable offense that you're found guilty of, it's a $200 surcharge. If there's a summary conviction offense, it's a $100 surcharge. And if it's a fine, it's 30% of the fine. This means that we see impoverished people who maybe get caught stealing a few times, say they plead guilty to five thefts and the associated breaches with that. So you can have yeah. 10 charges or even one or two thefts can lead to you know five or six charges. Yeah paying hundreds and hundreds of dollars. They can't afford that. What what this does... Hold on, just before you get to that, just for people who don't know, before Harper made it mandatory, it was discretionary. Judges could waive it or impose any amount that they wanted depending on the personal circumstances of the individual. And it was frequently waived because so many people in the courts just really don't have the means. It's it's unduly punitive and it's also just not realistic. And so it was it was being waived a lot. Um, rather than, you know, for example, appealing those decisions, failing to apply it and trying to get guidance from a higher court on when it should be waived and when it shouldn't, they basically doubled it and made it mandatory, right? And so we've seen these crushing fines that can impact, you know, um, the ability to get loans, the ability to get, um, you know, licenses, licenses, the ability to um, get, I mean, it destroys your credit rating. So maybe you can't get housing. Um, it can lead to, you know, you can't be thrown in jail because you can't pay a fine, but you certainly can be arrested and brought to court because you haven't paid a fine. So it can lead to, in some cases, to deprivation of liberty. And it's currently before the Supreme Court um, who's looking at its constitutionality. What this bill does for rich corporations who are already getting a break, paying their way out of criminal charges, it gives the prosecutors the discretion to impose whatever victim find surcharge they want yeah it says uh 30 or any other amount <laughs> which i mean the victim find surcharge could be really high if it's a you know a 10 million dollar um 10 million dollar fine or or judgment that's going to be uh, that's going to be made as part of this agreement i suppose 30 percent of that is three million dollars um but sorry i mean we're having poor people who have no money um have fines of hundreds of dollars so we have discretion to make things even easier on corporations 
for this victim fine part that doesn't apply to individuals. Now, in fairness to the government, they say they want to change this victim fine surcharge regime for individuals. They want to let judges have the discretion back. They introduced a bill to do that, um, and that bill stalled. It didn't move past. Um, it didn't even make it to committee. And then it was wrapped up with another bill, I think maybe C-75, which we've talked about, and it's back at that second reading stage now. Um, so we see no movement on that. And what we know about this particular amendment in this omnibus budget implementation bill, this isn't going to the Justice Committee for study. Well, this is no one's this going is to talk crazy. about this. Yeah, they're not going to they hear any. Like ten minutes of debate in finance committee. They're not going to hear any evidence on this. It doesn't relate to the bill. It doesn't. You could cut this out, and there would be no problem implementing the freaking budget. And is it just me, or is it like a little bit of a solution without a problem? In the sense that there is a problem, but I, I just I'm not sure. And this is what you know, committee and study and hearing from experts could have revealed is you know and and i'm saying that in part in the context of the broader priorities of all the things the government says is important for it to do in justice reform and again like i don't want to i don't want to be unfair in how i characterize it number one this is already something that theoretically can happen right yeah, like i mean the crown can stay charges stay the charge yeah sure yeah number two it it is a condition that the prosecutor be of the view that it's public in the public interest and reasonable and then there's a bunch of factors as to whether or not you know it's in the public interest and a remediation agreement has to be approved by a court so it there is a degree of i won't say transparency because the agreement can also be sealed uh but it and, is at and least talk about a bad position to put a court in yeah and i mean you can have the, the prosecutor who's trying to extract this large sum of money so they don't have to actually do the work of prosecuting. You've got the corporation willing to pay their way out of prosecution. And then you're going to ask a court, like the judicial branch, to determine whether it should be sealed and kept secret or not. I mean, it that doesn't seem right. I, I just think that if you're going to give such a great deal to an organization that it should be made public. I expect that the counter argument would be that if, you know, a big part of the point of all this is to ensure that those who are truly responsible are punished, but that those who aren't, aren't kind of thing, then I, I don't know. I just... How about you just don't commit the crime in the first place, corporations? <laughs> that's how that's how we view individuals. It's true. But again, th this doesn't immunize the individuals. Um, no, I, ex I mean, what I think... There are, I think, some good things here. And I mean, I would have less of a problem if it's like if a corporation wants to voluntarily come forward before they're being investigated to disclose something. I mean, I think that's pretty mitigating. We already have concepts of mitigation on a plea and voluntary disclosure and stuff to reduce sentences and reduce punishments. I mean, I think that there's stuff here to work with. Yeah, and if we could find good, reasonable, you know, moral ways to incentivize people to disclose their wrongdoing when it w is not otherwise going to be uncovered there is a value to that and that's why i think like the cra voluntary disclosure program is actually quite good like because yeah like but but at the same time even if you're just under a routine audit it, it and you know the auditor is starting to say mm, something's a bit off here something's a bit off my understanding from my time was that 
that would not constitute a voluntary disclosure because you're already on the radar. <clears throat> now, whether they're changing that or, or not is a different thing. But, you know, I would be very open to an idea like that that would be really for people that are not at all, you know, on the radar, who come forward, accept responsibility, explain exactly what they did, which also has a value because it can then help law enforcement uncover under other similar scams, right? But, and this is like, there's a lot in here. There's like 10 factors about this, six factors about that. Like, so, you know, this is not something that no work went into. And I just would have really liked to see the work be going into other priorities, like cleaning up the criminal code. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll be cynical and say that, I mean, I bet the two things that drove this and why it's stuck in this bill that's guaranteed to pass is helps your corporate Bay Street friends and corporations. And also, even if, and I, I expect that this may not be routinely taken advantage of, there won't be very many cases of it, but sure as heck when the NDP or other parties stand up at the next election and say, what have you done about corporate crime? What have you done about this? Why haven't you gone after offshore money? How come you haven't put more resources in? This is you know, a bold initiative that the government's going to point to to deflect those political attacks. Yeah, they'll probably describe it as historic or a once in a generation, you know, um, you know, law reform, whatever. Cause so, I mean, I, I think it it's about protecting wealthy, empowered corporations and also about deflecting, you know, very uh, legitimate criticism that they've been soft on corporate crime, on tax havens, and they're cutting corporations' breaks. Yeah, and the thing is, like, I just would worry about a system that makes too significant of a distinction between the organization and the individuals that direct it, right? Because if you sort of say, like, well, you know, certain people within the organization weren't really part of the fraud or whatever it is, like, at some point, people have to feel that there is a reason for them to know what's going on in the organization, if you know what I mean. Like, that if you kind of say, like, well, we're just going to segregate out the bad apples and let everything else continue in the status quo, there's almost, like, an incentive to, you know, be willfully blind or not ask too many questions about what's going on. And I think we want like individuals with decision-making authority within corporations to feel responsible for everything that the corporation does. And not just to feel responsible, to be responsible. And not to hide behind the like the corporation as, as a way to excuse or minimize their individual behavior. Yeah, or their failure to intervene. Like even if, even if they're not the principles of the offense, personally, like some of these individuals, um, you know, their failure to be sufficiently diligent to know what was going on or, you know, whatever it is. So I just don't really understand. And I wish, you know, if this had been in its own bill, we might at least have a better idea of like what's motivating it, where it's coming from. We'd get to hear more from the minister and everything else. Um, And it just feels sneaky. And like, this is, you know, this is a practice that our current government when campaigning in 2015 said that they really despised and had to stop and that they weren't going to have omnibus bills and then they did have a couple omnibus budget bills that were kind of like you know at some point they were saying well sometimes you you need to implement a budget you need a lengthy bill that implements you know all the different parts of the budget and i i do accept that you know there was a lot of debate when they were proposing to create an infrastructure bank as to whether you know, that was truly implementation of the budget, but at least there was a case to be made that there is a nexus between that and budgetary matters. This, though, is getting quite far away from that. You can remove this from the bill and it wouldn't affect 
the implementation of the budget. This exactly. has nothing to do with the implementation of the budget. They might as well have struck uh, stuck a section in uh, this bill that you know eliminates all mandatory minimum sentences. I'd still complain that that's part of an omnibus bill, but at least that would be you know a principled thing to do, because what we know is that this is going to be a whip to vote on this bill. People are going to have to vote for this. Because yeah, it's missing the budget. Yeah, and it's going to make it, you know, it, it's going to pass, right? It's going to receive royal assent, guaranteed, very quickly, whereas every other piece of criminal legislation has been left, you know, lagging and rotting on the floor. Yeah, and now I feel like, you know, I need to go through this thing with a fine-tooth comb. Who knows what else is in here? <laughs> if I hadn't called, been called by a media organization to offer a comment on this, I wouldn't have even known that it existed. Um, I can tell you that there's a, um, a formula for determining uh, the amount of earnings in subparagraph 57.1 that's A times F divided okay. by B times C times D times E divided by 12. That's enough. And I think that sort of math is something that's typical of this government and something that we should denounce. <laughs> Okey-dokey. Um, speaking of math, I, so I helped um, our daughter with uh, her math homework. We got up early this morning to do it because we had to take the kids out of class to go get new glasses. So she missed math. So we got up at 6 o'clock this morning to do uh, calculating the areas of triangles. Mm-hmm. And do you know what I had to Google? <laughs> How to calculate the areas How to of multiply. <laughs> What do you mean? Well, because they're not allowed to use calculators, right? Yeah. During the test. And so one of them was I had to I had to multiply, I think, 53 times, like, 48. Yeah. I was like, shit, how do you, you do that? You don't remember how to do that? Well, I do now. Shame on you. I had to Google it this morning. Shit. You should have just brought me down. You Seriously, you don't know how to do that? Well, no. Well, you do now. And, and Plus, I don't think that's even how they do math these days. They just do math by feelings. I don't know. <laughs> but what Charlie said was... Um, She's like, I knew it was pointless learning math because you're a successful grown-up and you don't even know it. So, there we go. That was a major parenting fail on your part. It was pretty bad. Um, but now she can um, read this budget implementation bill. can she, though? <laughs> I can barely do it. Yeah. So, uh, that was sort of short. Great. Do you have anything else to say about this? No. Maybe we... Do you think we should get someone to come and talk about the family law reforms? Is that of interest to our listeners? Let us know. We don't know anything about it, but other people do. Yeah, there's a new family law bill um, introduced from what the minister's talking points on it. it. I mean, she made it sound like... It's historic. It's historic that they're taking into account the best interests of the children, and I thought that that was sort of a principle that I learned like 15 years ago in law school. Yeah, yeah. So really don't know enough to offer an informed critique, but... Family law lawyers, tell us if the family law reform, which again wasn't in the mandate letter, um, if that has been as successful and principled as their criminal law reform. Please do. We want your feedback. Thanks for listening, everyone. It was fun. Yeah. Let's never do that again. Ranty. Have a good night. Bye. See ya. Thank you to Jeremy Fisher for allowing us to use his awesome song, Uh Oh, as our introduction music. You can check out more at the podcast page at michaelspratt.com or you can subscribe to the docket on iTunes. If you like it, spread the word. You can follow Emily on Twitter at Emily Tamman and you can follow me on Twitter at mspratt. Thanks for listening. You can't
prove it. Oh, oh. You got nothing legit. Oh.